Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Kenny Passarelli, the famed bassist, vocalist, and composer. Kenny is a Denver native who's been on an amazing musical journey, a founding member of Barnstorm, a key player with the Elton John Band, and a valued musician with a who's who of other stars, including Holland Oates, the late Dan Fogelberg, and Stephen Stills. He has a lot of gold records on the wall. Welcome. Thanks, G. I've been very fortunate. I've had some great breaks, and I've taken advantage of them (laughs) any way possible. With a surname like Passarelli, everyone assumes you're a Paisan, and rightfully so. Yeah, everybody assumed that I grew up with the small dones, (laughs) which wasn't true. My great-grandfather left Italy and ended up in Aguilar, Trujillo Creek, Colorado, in 1870. Immediately married into the Hispanic, the Quintanas, the Quintana Ranch down there. So my father left the Trinidad area when he was about 12 and settled in Denver. Because he spoke Spanish, my family was really more West Siders. I was the only child that didn't attend West High School. I attended East High School because my dad, who was in law enforcement, purchased a house in 35th and Harrison, you know, right by the Park Hill Golf Course in about 1953-54. So we weren't North Denver Italians, but my father knew all those guys for various reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Having a father in law enforcement had to inform a lot of things in your life. Very much so. My first music experience in terms of education, the Denver Police Protective Association sponsored an organization called the Denver Junior Police Band that was quite popular in the early 50s, I think, and all the way maybe till the late 60s. But when I joined up at seven through my dad, I started playing trumpet because he loved the song Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom Pie by Press Prada, I think it was. And it's the trumpet thing. And I think they got me a toy trumpet, and that evolved into going for an interview as a child with the director, and they looked at your mouth. And I think I wanted to play clarinet because Benny Goodman or whatever. Now I'm really showing my age. But because of the way my armature was, the trumpet was the instrument. And education a key, because you did have formal musical training then throughout your I learned how to read music. I started at seven, and I was in the organization until I was 16. And that meant every Denver parade, St. Patrick's Day, you name it, any parade, the Denver Junior Police bands, there were several of them. started with the Beginners Band, and then it ended up with the top band, which was the inaugural band. They would go to the inauguration of the president every four years, and I did that for Johnson. It was January 65. We were told, whatever you do, do not look to the left where the president is because we'll be taking pictures and anybody who does is going to get demerits. I didn't, but I saw a bunch of my friends who got popped for that. That's so unlike you, Ken. No, I was a scared young man back then, okay? I made up for it later. But that was the the beginning. The director of the organization was a guy who was like a second father to me. His name was Byron D. Jolivet, and he was a Hollywood trumpet guy. He was an older gentleman by the time I worked with him, and the music business had really soured on him. And here he was conducting and directing kids 
I think he was frustrated by the business, and it was always an undertone for me not to be a professional musician. He taught me everything he knew, but really, between he and my father, being a professional musician to make a living, it was always like, uh, not a good life, and you can have fun with it, but get a real job. Obviously, that advice didn't take. It didn't take at all. It did for a while. Again, the Denver Junior Police Band gave me the foundation for reading music because he was also my private lessons teacher. I worked with him privately every Thursday for nine years, except for the month of August, half an hour. And so I had this unbelievable early training, fantastic lesson in theory from the time I was seven until I was 16. So he taught me all this stuff, always saying, do what your dad says, become a lawyer, because that's what my father wanted me to do, something he didn't get to do, and he had it planned. He was an officer from 40, the war started, and he had flat feet, and he became a flat foot, as it were. (laughs) So he became a patrolman early, and then probation department started in the late 40s, and he signed up for that. So all this law enforcement stuff was always around. My dad was guiding me, law school, work for the DAs, and then move on. And later I understood that. It was a pretty strict environment between my teacher and my father. I didn't want to disappoint either one of them. I did that later. The rebellious teenage years. 15, 16, I have all this background. I was a legit trumpet player. I could sight read, but I couldn't swing. And then the garage band started. I had friends who started buying guitars and going to see bands like the Moonrakers. All of a sudden, I saw another angle, and nobody wanted to play bass guitar. The most attention was lead guitar and drums. Bass was like, eh. My mom and dad would go to Juarez every year. They'd drive down to Juarez and buy liquor, and the usual thing, go to the bullfight, get wasted, and... They brought back a little Spanish guitar for me. The first four strings of the guitar is where I started teaching myself how to play bass. I was frustrated with the trumpet. I had the melody from the trumpet, but I couldn't express myself rhythmically, and the bass really is melody and rhythm. So it was the perfect instrument for me at that time, and I assimilated quickly. You graduated from East early? 1967. Early? I was 17. And you went to the University of Denver on a trumpet performance scholarship. Yeah, I knew that to get into college, the trumpet was going to be a way to go. I knew I didn't want to be a classical musician, but I used it. I was accepted to Juilliard. I was accepted to Curtis Institute, CU, DU, Greeley, just because I had such great training. But my heart wasn't into it. And I was already in a rock and roll band in town called The Ducks, right out of East High School, and I chose DU because of my band. And so I got a scholarship, performance scholarship, trumpet, lived in my parents' basement, and played rock and roll on the weekends. The Ducks, D-U-X, we were playing the circuit back then, which would have been the three two clubs in Denver, four or five at the most, Tulagi in Boulder, the library in Fort Collins, and someplace in Greeley, and then down south, Tony Spicola's Pinocchio's in Pueblo, and then the Crazy Cat in Colorado Springs. So that was the circuit, 18-year-olds being allowed to drink 3.2 beer. And that was the only venues that early bands had in the late 60s. So for me, being in a band was more like a brotherhood. My oldest brother was 20 years older than me. My closest sibling was 10 years older than me. So I grew up somewhat by myself, and the rock and roll thing became my family. Once I saw that, I was going, rock and roll fame, money, and joy. 
lot of that was motivation for me to learn as much as I could about the bass. And the Ducks had broken up. The lead singer got leukemia and died in a year, and that was it. I'm playing in the orchestra at DU, and I'm going, this isn't for me. I'm not really a great student. Thinking, what am I going to do next? Bob Yazel was a guitar player who later played with Sugarloaf, but he had already been experienced. He'd been with the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. So I connected with these guys. Next thing I knew, I joined the band, The Beast, playing trumpet. I was still playing bass, but not with that group, and eventually I went from trumpet to bass. Beast was based for a time down in Colorado Springs. You premiered the Kelker Junction nightclub around 1968. You opened for The Who, for crying out loud. Got a better review as the papers of the time chronicled. It was a fantastic band. David Raines was the lead singer. He was kind of like a white James Brown. I don't know how to describe our music. It was kind of R&B-ish, but it wasn't. It was pop. It was all original music. We had this manager, a guy named John Philbin. His father was the producer of the Jackie Gleason show, and he went from Miami to Colorado Springs, and John got us a deal with Atco. Atco was a relatively new label. There we were, and, and we were recorded with Norman Petty, Buddy Holly's producer in Clovis, New Mexico. It was the first experience in a real professional studio with a really fine engineer. He had a beautiful setup there. And we were being booked, went to Canada. We were in Edmonton and Calgary, the Kansas area and and places like that. This was the late 60s, and a few members of the band connected with a rough crowd is how it could be put charitably. Denver, 67... The summer of love, Denver was behind San Francisco and Los Angeles, but when it hit this town, things changed. The family dog was really instrumental in exposing this new music to a Denver crowd. I remember going to see Big Brother and then that night going back to my parents' house and turning the FM radio on an interview with with Janice and the band and seeing the Buffalo Springfield. So to me, that was motivation to keep going and maybe go against my father's will, which I did. He wasn't too happy about all that stuff, especially when I dropped out of college and got arrested. Crystal meth had started to make its ugly appearance around that time, and I believe the Dangerous Drug Act had not been passed yet, and so there were a lot of methamphetamines going around, and there were a couple guys in the band who were doing that, and they made some connections with some people I had no idea. I was a little bit naive about all of this. Growing up in a law enforcement family, I was always a little bit scared of making a mistake in that way. But I did make the mistake. I drove Bob Yazel on 17th and Franklin, I remember. I mean, we were on our way to Colorado Springs, and he says, I'm going to pick up a little weed. It wasn't speed or anything. He says, why don't you come in with me? I said, okay, and boom. There was a methamphetamine lab in this house, which I had no idea of. And I remember when my mother saw me on the 1030 News handcuffed going to jail. It was really a terrible thing for my dad's reputation, and he was more concerned about that than my innocence, I think. There was a newspaper article, son of 
Sam Passerelli arrested, blah, blah, blah. And then there was a retraction later. On the back page. On the back page. Yeah. But it didn't deter me. I didn't run away from the band. And if anything, I, I understood what was going on. It gave me an insight. You started hanging out more in Boulder, where it turns out you got introduced to Stephen Stills, who was living up in Gold Hill. The only music store back then was Happy Logan's, downtown Denver, and Happy Logan's son, Warner Logan. A few years older than me, where you hang out? It was either the record store or the music stores would be the place to go. I'd gotten a bit of a reputation, and Warner said, hey, have you ever heard of a guy named, back then it was Steve Stills? And I said, yeah, I saw Steve Stills with Buffalo Springfield, and Super Session was released. And he says, Steven's going to be blah, 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 and would you like to meet him? He's looking for a bass player, and he's working on a new project. I was with the Beast at the time. I drove up to Gold Hill. It was February of 1969. It was snowing in a small little Victorian house. There was a Bentley with a trailer pulling some motocross bikes. Wow, I had never seen a Bentley before. And knock on the door, Stephen opens the door, and he looked right out of the album cover. This preppy sort of look with a button-down shirt and a V-neck and the mountain boots. Walked in, and the first thing he said was, I want you to hear my new project. There was this tiny little portable stereo with the two speakers, pulls this thicker piece of plastic vinyl, and so he played me the acetate of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And uh, that was it. It changed my life. I heard do 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 You know, six months before it was released, Stephen said, what kind of bass do you play? And I said, well, I play a Gibson. And he says, no, no, you can't play a Gibson. And... He says, this is what you have to play. You have to play a Fender Precision. And Stephen played bass on the entire record. And he played everything, really, except for drums. It was really Stephen's record, that first CSN record. I hear new music. I meet somebody who I looked up to. The next day we got together. Before Caribou Ranch, there was a cabin up there with a group of guys from DU called Conal Implosion. And we all went over there and played. And Stephen said, you can do this. There was a blip, though. You got sick. And I was also, I was with a band that signed a deal. So Stephen says, we've been offered our first gig of something called Woodstock. We don't even know what it is. And here's my manager's number. His name's David Geffen. Call David, tell him that we met, give him your information. Well, infectious hepatitis was rampant. People passing joints or whatever, just bad hygiene. I had hepatitis. I didn't know it. Finished up some gigs, hadn't said anything to the Beast yet, going, how am I going to do this, being a loyal guy? But it worked out. I said, listen, I have this opportunity. And I came back from a tour, still staying at my parents' house. My eyes were yellow. My dad took me to the police. Remember, he touched my liver, and it was over with. I was out for the count for about six months. So I missed the gig. It just wasn't meant to be. But it had to be tough. Being 19 years old, you think you'd gotten the gig of your life. I'd left the beast already. I'm lying in the basement of my parents' house recovering, going, I can't believe this. Once I got well, connected with the group that we jammed with, with Stephen Conal Implosion, I ended up going to Los Angeles with them. And again, my father was always going, okay, well, you ready to go back to DU? So I went from 
the beast to the miss with Stephen to coral implosion and then to Los Angeles and starving. But something interesting was happening concurrently. A guy named Joe Walsh had been building a pretty good reputation as lead guitarist and vocalist for the James Gang out of Cleveland. Right. Funk 49, the Bomber, Walk Away. Very popular band, lots of touring. But when the big bucks beckoned, Joe kind of turned the other way. He was encouraged by Bill Simzik, his friend and producer, and made the decision to relocate out to Boulder County. He ended up forming a new group called Barnstorm with drummer Joe Vitale, who was a compadre from back in Cleveland, and a new friend, a Colorado bassist named Kenny Passarelli. I'll always mention Tommy Bowen's name because Tommy and I were friends. When I was with the Beast, Tommy had run away from Sioux City and appeared in Denver with his Les Paul, and that's about it. Tommy and I had known each other since 1968. I had a band in Vancouver after Colonel Implosion that didn't get a deal. I came back home, and I went back to, to University of Denver, not as a music student but as a pre-law student. Put the bass in the corner and was working at the Holly South, a Mexican restaurant my dad had connected me with with some friends of his, and music was over with for me. And then I get a call from Tommy in Boulder saying, are you out of your mind, lawyer? And he says, I've got this jazz guy coming into town named Jeremy Steig. So I was with Tommy when he was going to make that transition. All of a sudden, I'm back into the game, the new jazz scene. We opened for Tony Williams' Lifetime at the Cafe of Go-Go. Miles comes to the gig, and all of a sudden, Tommy's saying, this is where we got to be, man. We got to do this. Well, it didn't work out. Tommy went back to Boulder. I went back, finished the school year, went on the road with John Hammond, ended up back in Vancouver, and then a few months later, I get a call from Tommy. Hey, this guy Joe Walsh has moved to Netherland. Do you know the James Gang? And you got to meet this guy. I gave him your number. He's looking for a bass player. And that's how it started. Tommy made the introduction. Joe called me in Vancouver. I flew down, borrowed my dad's car, drove up to Netherland, and Joe had a studio in his house. And Joe played me a couple tracks that he'd recorded in Los Angeles. Vitali was there. We played, and that was it. That was the beginning. Barnstorm right. uh, was the first album ever recorded up at Caribou Ranch, yes, the legendary it, recording it complex was. near Nederland. It was dirt floors at that time. Bill Simzik says, there's a guy named Jim Gersio, the producer of Chicago, is building a studio not too far from where we are. And he called up Jim and the rest is history. It was still being built, so the second floor of the barn housed the studio. And the control room and the recording area were complete. It was dirt floors down below, it was still stables like a barn in the sense we recorded there first. And that record, what a creative ferment for the four of you. Simzik behind the board putting it all together, Joe wanting to expand his musical horizons, you and Joe Vitale, such creative forces in your own right. Joe Vitale is one of the most talented people I've ever met. Great drummer. He was also a writer, a singer. He played flute, he played keyboards. When the three of us got together, you had two guys who were multi-instrumental. I was just teaching myself how to play keyboards at that point, but I could sing. 
the three of us together, we really were a great team, but the one who really put it all together for us was Bill. He was our George Martin, super creative, and Joe allowed that to happen. You got your first big credit with a song called Mother Says. Mother says be careful and don't stay out too long. Don't do things you shouldn't. Miss me when I'm gone. records were composed in the studio. Joe, not being the most prolific guy, allowed us to participate as writers. So yes, I got my first credit on Mother Says. That was the beginnings of understanding to the business end of it, that your pension is the publishing and copyrights. Unfortunately, the business end of the deal was that Joe's old managers of the James Gang sabotaged the record because Joe quit at the time when the James Gang, as a trio, were playing 10,000 seaters. That's a lot of money. So the management was really hoping that his solo career would fail and Joe would come back to the James Gang. ABC Dunhill released the record, and there wasn't a lot of push. Joe really financed everything we were doing with his savings. By the time we finished the second record, Joe was tapped out. Fortunately, Rocky Mountain Way hit and things changed for Joe, especially. honest with you, my contribution is really the bass part and the feel with Vitale. Joe wrote the lyrics, and we tossed some ideas around, but that's really Joe's song. Happy Ways started with your bass lick. guy didn't work with at Woodstock ends up moving to Boulder. He left London, and Manassas was out of Boulder, Colorado, and I reconnected with Stephen. I wouldn't have had the lyrics had I not met Buddy Zoloff, who was working for Manassas, and then I ended up being offered a job with Manassas, which I didn't take right away. I couldn't quit Joe at that point. We had Rocky Mountain Way out. So he hired Barnstorm, and we opened shows all summer. We did all those summer sheds. So I played with Barnstorm and changed my clothes and played with Stills through a, a summer tour. You started playing the fretless bass, which very few people were doing at the time, and it became your trademark. Joe has got one of the very first manufactured fretless basses. Jaco Pastorius took the frets off of a Fender Jazz bass to create his fretless, but this is one of the first ones manufactured, and it was like 72. And Joe handed me the bass and said, you gotta learn this. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It became a sound. It became my sound. Our agent at that time was a guy named Irving Azoff. He had one client as a manager named Dan Fogelberg, Danny Fogelberg. 
Irving's idea was to have Joe Walsh produce Dan's second record, which was Souvenirs. And I was asked to play on it, and it's the fretless bass, so... And part of the plan becomes the hit that launched his career. You played off the melody to construct your line, which is right there at the beginning. Complete artist, Dan really had it all. He could play Red Rocks by himself, but at the same time he could go in the studio and he could play anything. And he was a poet. I always said the male Joni Mitchell of his time. So Dan really had had it going for him. And I was lucky that Walsh asked me to play, played on some great tracks. There's a place in the world for a gambler. It was a little rugged. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I almost threw in the towel there. It was one last track the gambler and he came up with this idea of a, a line at the end it was almost like Bach da -da 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 -da. He and Simzik and Joe were in the control room and they wanted me to overdub. And I sat there for, I forget how many hours. We just couldn't get it. And I remember looking through the glass and seeing Fogelberg and Joe disappointed. Finally, we ended the session. I remember going back to the hotel room going, geez, maybe I should just give it up. This is it. Next day, we did the track. It's a great part. It worked out perfect. And I'm really happy that I got to do that. Barnstorm by 74 had broken up. Joe was persuaded by the powers that be that Barnstorm was not a band. Barnstorm was Joe Walsh. I felt really bad about Barnstorm breaking up. I didn't want to leave Colorado. I loved being up at Caribou. I spent a lot of time at Caribou and the opportunity of working with Stephen. A few years later, Joe called up with a tune called A Life of Illusion. 1981. That, that mariachi influence kind of came full circle You never circle know when your, your influences are going to show up, right? right? The third record of the Barnstorm group became Joe's record called So What? And we recorded the basic track for Life of Illusion. That's all we had. The band broke up, and that was 74. And in 1981, Joe called me and said, hey, remember that track that we did? I think it was called Garlic Prawns. He said, I wrote lyrics to it. This is seven years later. Confusion and life of illusion. And <laughs> it rhymes. It, 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 was, it was really dark because it was a real light song and the brilliance of Walsh. And he says, by the way, do you still play trumpet? And I said, no, but I'm sure I can if need be. And he says, come up to Santa Barbara, bring your trumpet. So we get there, and after a couple tequilas, he says, okay, I want mariachi trumpets on this. And I said, oh, yeah, I can do that.
got this bizarre tune. It was my track. Joe wrote the lyrics, sang the record. I played trumpets on it, and it became a hit. How did you come to join the Elton John band? I left Joe to work with Stephen Stills. I didn't go to L.A. with him. I really thought, that's it. I'll probably never hear from Joe Walsh again. After working with Stephen and not getting the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young tour in 74, I ended up going to Maui with my tail between my legs going, oh, geez, what am I going to do next? I get a call from Vitaly. He got a deal with Atlantic Records. He said, why don't you come and work with me? That happened, and while I was on the road with Vitaly, I got a call from Joe Walsh. I was in a hotel someplace back east. He hadn't joined the Eagles yet. He was really running with a successful solo career at this point. This is 1975. He says, I was with Elton John. I'm in Vegas, and he's looking for a new bass player. And I wasn't a big fan of Elton's. I'd listened to his records, but I was more into Stephen and the Americana music, and I admired what he was doing. Joe says, he wants to do something different. He's heard your work. Barnstorm never crossed the pond, but those records did. And he also had heard the Souvenirs record. I think the record that really influenced him and got him to come up to Caribou was the Rick Derringer record. Next thing I know, I get a call from Elton's management, and next thing was a direct call from Elton, and I was offered the gig. I was on an airplane to Paris with Elton and his assistant, he said about three words to me on the plane to Paris. <laughs> I'd been around the block. I'd flown in private planes with Stephen. But this was different. This was like 15 bags of Cartier luggage and getting into a convertible corniche and going to a chateau that George Sun and Frederick Chopin lived in. We get there, and I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to audition, right? Uh, Elton says, you know, I'm, I'm really jet-lagged, and here, meet the band. And Davy Johnson takes me aside. And I said, am I being an audition? And he says, no, no, you wouldn't be here. There's no audition. You've got the gig. They explained to me who Elton was. Was really quiet back then about his homosexuality because of the business. The return buyers are always the young teenagers. And Elton had this gigantic following of young 13, 14, 15-year-old girls. And the last thing the company wanted to do was to reveal that Elton was a homosexual. And that became a real burden for Elton. So I was told right then, Davy said, I'm just going to let you know this is what's going on, but you're not going to believe what an incredible artist he is. And that's his personal life. He and his manager, John Reed, at the time were a couple. He has his entourage. But when it comes time to playing, you're not going to believe what you're going to see and what you're involved in. And your first gig... Was Wembley Stadium. Wembley Stadium in England in front of... Almost 100,000 people. And he debuted the album Captain, Captain Fantastic, Fantastic and the Brown Dirt so Cowboy. Captain, and then we came back to Colorado and recorded uh, Rock of the Westies at Caribou. That was my first number one single I was on and my first album debuted number one. did a lot of great things with Elton. Shows at Madison Square Garden, Blue Moves was the double album after Rock of the Westies. Right. You were playing an Olympic bass. I was hired, I felt, because of my Fender fretless bass work. That Wembley Stadium gig was a hint to me of what was going to happen in the future. We recorded that concert and I was a bit intimidated, not so much by Elton, but by Gus Dudgeon, who was his producer. 
Different type of producer than Bill Simzik. If anything, I think he was disappointed that Elton had broken up the band. So I always felt like I'm the new guy and I better just be careful, not bite the hand that's feeding me. And I get off the stage at Wembley. He has a mobile unit there. He says, I couldn't get a sound off your bass. It just sucked. I just went, wow. Okay. Fast forward to a Rock of the Westies. We rehearse for a week. We lay down tracks. Everything is incredible. It's basically live at Caribou, all of us together in one room. I finish the last track. Gus does the old principal student to the office sort of thing, come over here, I want to talk to you. He says, you're going to have to redo all your bass parts. I said, you got to be kidding me. Okay. And he said, do you have any other basses? I said, no. This is what I play. I play fretless bass. And he says, well, we're going to have to figure this out. So I went up to Jim Gersio's cabin, the owner of the ranch, and I said, Jimmy, I've got a big problem here. This guy didn't get a sound on my bass, and the tracks are done, everybody's partying, and I'm called in to redo the basses. And Jim says, look through what I have. And so I brought three of the basses that Jimmy had. He had a Fender, and he had a Gibson, and then he had a Hoffner that Paul McCartney had given him. And that was the only bass that Gus could get a sound off of. The action was really high, and it was fretted. So I redid the bass parts, and I was really disappointed. I did the entire year, the Rock of the Westies tour. We did Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium, that's a fretless bass live. But in my mind, the next record, I didn't want to have a problem with Gus, so I bought an Alembic bass, a fretted bass, and I didn't return to the fretless bass until August of last year. It's sad, so sad. Why can't we talk it over? Oh, it seems to me that Cyrus seems to be the hardest word. You came up with your parts with Elton by standing next to the piano and watching his left hand. Elton's bass parts, his left hand, they're not just roots. He would do different movements. And I realized the technique for me to work with him was to stand next to his left hand and memorize what he's doing. And he was never one to say, don't do this, do this. I did what I felt was necessary, and he was trusting and all that. He wasn't one of these dictators. Those were parts based off of the composition, what he'd written, but my interpretation of that, he was very open. After Blue Moves, Elton said he was burned out. You then connected with the Hall & Oates band, with Daryl and John. You appeared on the album Along the Red Ledge and did a live album. I was always smitten with the track I Don't Want to Lose You, produced by David Foster, another old compadre. That track in particular, their homage to Philly Soul, their roots. just approaching this mega career that he was going to have. We'd known each other since Canada, so I was really fortunate that Daryl and John decided to work with David, and there we were all working together, and all their records to that point were all done by studio musicians. And I said, you know what, you guys, let me bring in Caleb and Roger Pope from the Elton John Band. They're out of work, and they're great musicians, and they can tour, and we can record live. 
And that's what happened. You also played on Daryl Hall's solo album, Sacred Songs. With Roger and Caleb and Robert Fripp produced. Robert Fripp, the producer. Daryl was pigeonholed at the time as a pop star. In an alternate universe somewhere, he's as influential as a David Bowie in terms of being a multifaceted, influential artist. That record was as progressive as anything that came out at the time. It was a very odd time. I saw Daryl progressing, and he was really tired of being the blue-eyed soul guy, and he was experimenting with new music. And to be honest with you, I think he was looking to do a solo career. But again, the big company steps in and sabotage that record. You were coming close to a solo deal with RSO. You had a screen test involved in that whole ferment with the Robert Stigwood organization. A lot of people saw those last gigs at Madison Square Garden. Elton was the biggest artist in the world at the time. Seven sold-out gigs at Madison Square Garden. We had a choir for doing the encores, and it was quite a production. It was just unbelievable band. And when Elton, the night before the last night, announced that he was done, we were all shocked. But I had already had been approached by Robert Stigwood, wondering if I was at all interested in a film career, played him some songs. So I already had a deal. Robert was working with a TV actor named John Travolta. He was working with a director, John Abelson, who just had finished Rocky. The movie was about this guy who discovers disco dancing, but he's got a group of friends that he's growing up with in Brooklyn, and I was offered a part, one of the guys, and also a record deal, and be managed by Robert Stigwood. It was a little bit incestual. I did a screen test with John Travolta. For Saturday Night Fever. For Saturday Night Fever. I was working with John Abelson. I was taking acting lessons. I was learning how to develop a Brooklyn accent. And Rocky won an Oscar or whatever. And John Albertson told Stigwood, I want my guy to do the music if I'm going to direct Saturday Night Fever. And his guy was Bill Conti, who did Getting Strong Now. Well, Robert Stigwood said, no, that's not going to happen because my guys, the Bee Gees, are going to do the soundtrack. And so Stigwood fired John Albertson. And that was my link to the movie. Stigwood called me and says, this guy wants to use his guy. I fired him. I said, uh, I think I'd rather work on the record. Big mistake. <laughs> so I worked on the record, and then the Hall & Oates thing came up. But you were this close to being the guy that jumped off the bridge I in was the movie. The, I forget the little guy that jumps. That was my part, <laughs> jumping off the bridge. In the mid-'80s, you pulled back a little, stopped touring, and got into composing what you called contemporary classical music. After Hollow Notes, I was working more on the piano in terms of composition. I was always looking for a lyricist. I've written songs with just about everybody I've ever worked with. But I found a lyricist, and then we got a deal by doing something in Spanish. I signed a deal with CBS International, worked with Humberto Gatica, who was David Foster's right-hand man. The record was called El Camino. The group was called Santa Fe.
we did one record and got some notoriety down south. The record's a little ahead of its time. It was bilingual. There's a couple tracks in Spanish, a couple tracks in English. It just didn't get launched properly. And so I took some of those ideas, came back to Colorado, connected with Dick Darnell. He had a record company called Ethereum, and I came up with this concept. It was called Songs of My Ancestors, and it was done here in Golden, Colorado. Dick really gave me an opportunity to do an extended piece of work, 12 movements based off of a theme. I played the entire piano track. It was built based off of that. You got to perform with the Colorado Symphony, got into production. You produced the best records that Otis Taylor ever made, the blues guitarist. Otis Taylor started working together in 95. Then his guitar player, Eddie Turner, I did three records with him and other artists that I met launching Otis's career. I met a guy named David Jacob Strain. I did a record with Ann Wise. Production was something that I learned really from being around Bill Simzik, Gus Dudgeon, Stephen Stills. And Stephen told me in the early 70s, he says, someday I think you could be a producer, you know, you're a musician, but you have these ideas. And so that happened later. You lived in Santa Fe and Mexico City for a spell, but you returned to Denver. Jim Gersio, who was this intimidating giant of a talent and producer, and, and I was hoping to come back to Denver, could exhume Caribou Ranch. So I came back to Denver in 2009. It, it didn't happen, but... I retained my relationship with Jimmy, and I had a chance really to go back and forth up to Caribou a bunch. Where are you at this point, Kenny? If the phone rings, do you pick it up? Of course. In 2007, I got a call from Stephen Stills. His bass player couldn't do these dates. I ended up going to Toronto, and I did 26 dates with Stephen, a live record, a CD, and DVD. And then I got a call from Cat Stevens, who is now Yusuf Islam. I did a record with him in 2009. So all of a sudden, I'm back into the bass player guy. It's still something I'll always do. I'm still doing all of the above. And you're still a sweetheart. Hey, thanks, buddy. What's your favorite musician's joke? What do you call a successful bassist, G? I don't know, Kenny. A guy whose wife has two jobs. <laughs> The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support for music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org.